Hello and welcome to Time Lock, in which guests choose the records they would place in a time capsule to represent their lives. On this episode, I'm stoked to talk with Ned Rush. self-facilitating node Ned does it all he's a musician producer composer and most recently super expert tutor and virtual festival ringleader his Ableton YouTube videos are essential viewing for anyone who uses that program expert or noob his more kicks than friends online micro festivals have been a real bright point during the madness of 2020 with an incredible spectrum of electronic musicians bubbling under the mainstream radars. Boiler room isolation, it is not. I'm AMC and I'm your host for the next hour or so. Recorded as lockdown was slowly being lifted in the UK, you'll hear Ned talk passionately about the lost art of original TV and film music scores, the glory years of electronic music and how Wayne's world may have transformed his musical path of creativity. This version of the podcast contains the music Ned chose. There is an extended version of the conversation without the music if you want to seek it out. Welcome to Time Lock, Ned. It's great to have you on. Thanks. Um, the guys at uh, Gator are massive fans of you, particularly Nodes and the f- kind of f- virtual festivals you're running at the weekend. So I wondered maybe you could talk a bit bit about yourself and then maybe a little bit about that. Um, just let listeners know what you're up to and what it's all about, because I think it's pretty unique from from what I've been looking around during this kind of lockdown period. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, so the festivals came about um, because of lockdown, which I think has uh been a motivation for lots of people to think about what they're going to do with their situation and i was spending a lot of time on the internet because <laughs> there was nothing to do and um sort of uh you know i was on my uh facebook feed or whatever and i just kept scrolling and scrolling past all of these uh sort of zoom podcasts and and thinking um well, this is very nice, but like, um, where's all the music? Like, people could be uh, using this time to be streaming music, like live music, because we can't go out, we can't go to gigs. Um, and so I just thought, uh, yeah, why not just try and encourage people to to do that? And I just, I, I started just sort of contacting a lot of my friends and saying, hey, I'm thinking about like streaming like a load of sets and calling it like a like a tv like a sort of music tv show Mm. and um and i and i and uh, and then i just started doing it and then it i started chasing more people because i thought oh it might be worth you know carrying on with this and see how see how many um you know 
friends I can exhaust for content. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it's just sort of kept going really. And, uh, um, it, I, it, it, it sort of started conceptually as like a, an online festival, but I'm thinking now I'm thinking of it more like a kind of TV show, like sort of, um, you know, these days there's not a, a huge amount to, you know, we can just like consume stuff on the internet anytime that we want. Maybe there's less of, I don't know, unless you're watching Strictly Come Dancing or something, there's less of that kind of uh, communal view, weekly viewing experience. Mm. Um, and I, I kind of, I think maybe I'm leaning more to it, uh, thinking of it like that in a romantic sense. <laughs> but I, I, I kind of um, always quite fancied, I've got a background in putting on events and, and the idea of programming acts and, you know, creating set lists and things is something I've always sort of taken quite seriously you know making mm. things flow and thinking about who would sit nicely next to each other or who, what would hugely contrast uh that and and stuff and um and i always quite fancied putting on a festival in real life <laughs> um but this this is a much easier way to do it and less expensive <laughs> definitely definitely so so for someone who hasn't uh, attended one of these what what does a typical if there is such a typical kind of format but you know how long is it how many acts do you have how, how does it kind of work well it kind of varies um I, th- so I the first one i did i think i had about nine acts and it went on for about four hours. Um, and then a couple of times I've had like four acts and I've sort of filled it out a little bit more by maybe phoning some of them in and talking about what they did in their set or whatever. But um, it's generally, it's very sort of loose and and free form. You know, people can kind of do whatever they want. It's focusing <clears throat> mostly on performance in electronic music. Mm. Um, which is pretty a pretty broad field, I suppose, which makes it interesting because, you know, no one's ever really doing the same thing. Everyone's got their own thing, um, their own vision, I suppose, of what they think an electronic music performance is or should involve. So I really like it. I just get to sit in my chair and watch all this great music and uh, chat with people on the internet whilst it's happening. So it's very relaxing. <laughs> yeah. So the sort of very strong electronic background that you've been certainly talking about with, with the festivals. I mean, I'm looking at your list and we're going to talk through now, obviously very electronic heavy, a real good spectrum of artists and tracks. So really keen to get stuck into into these and this selection and kind of why you chose them. But actually the first track obviously has a lot of electronic elements, but and ultimately and still is a huge electronic artist, but roots very firmly in kind of the funk and R&B. So it's Herbie Hancock and the, the track Palm Grease. What an absolute monster track to kind of kick off this selection. So tell us, um, you know, why you chose this one and are you a big fan of Herbie? Or Well, uh, I, I, when I was um, sort of putting this list together, I started to notice a pattern, I suppose, in the choices. And I think it was 
to do with that they're all um i guess turning points or events that sort of open they were their gateway gateway tracks <laughs> or gateway moments i should say so so for me with herbie hancock it was i guess um so i was kind of a, a teenager play a teenage guitarist and and wanting to you know i kind of i was quite academic with my guitar playing i sort of did grades and stuff i did like a grade eight and um and then after that i kind of thought well i wasn't i, I don't really know academically which direction to go in and and jazz was kind of the direction that i guess you could go in or classical music like it wasn't heavy metal <laughs> like it if you wanted to kind of go to the next level in terms of being a um uh, a more able player i guess the the route that you would go down is to learn jazz and so i started um uh you know just trying to listen to as much jazz as possible and i went to study jazz at a college and and in the process i kind of had to um yeah sort of wade my way through like oh some of this is crap or you know some of this is really good you know where's the where's the good stuff and um and actually it was i think it was headhunters but chameleon was the first one that i heard where i was like whoa yeah okay this is the this is the good stuff but i picked up um i forget what the album's called now it's thrust right it's thrust yep um i picked that up some years later and it's just it's it's like the epitome of like fusion (laughs) that track it's like it's so dangerous <laughs> i don't know how i don't know what kind of planet those people are on i think i can't remember the name of the rhythm section now but i think they were the same people on headhunters um and i think it's just three guys oh no there's someone on flute as well i think but um i, I yeah it just it just blows me away listening to that sort of the um uh, how are those people operating? How, how do they know what they're doing? How do they know what they're doing? How like because <laughs> it, it's not it's improvised, but it's so there are marks and there are pushes and there are things where everyone is locked and um, and it's uh, it's 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 just amazing. And I saw I I actually went to watch Harry Hancock once, and they opened with that, but it was like twenty minutes long. Wow, <laughs> and um, and it started with like a five-minute drum solo, <laughs> um, but it was—I I thought it was a very unusual choice to open a Herbie Hancock gig, but maybe actually at the same time the perfect choice. But um, I, so I, I suppose really that was hearing Herbie Hancock, and also you know other people like Miles Davis and Coltrane, and, and uh, for me it was um, the the start of uh, looking at music. Um, being excited about improvised music, you know, and um, coming to like the end of my teenage years and being a little bit distant, starting to lose interest a little bit in the guitar music that I was hearing and, and you know, things, music that I was listening to being like four minutes long, having a beginning, middle and end. And, and as, a, as a guitar player myself, when I started to learn improvisation, um, I, you know, I used to get really excited about the idea of um, being able to play for longer than I was sometimes allowed to. <laughs> I don't remember I was in a in a band at the time, and um, I would sometimes extend my guitar solos out for a lot for a lot longer than I was I was meant to. And 
uh, get a few looks from other band members but um and yeah sort of going to uh, going to watch bands locally that were i guess they were prog bands at the time but um just the idea that music can just be something that you can just keep you can just keep playing until everyone's dead <laughs> doesn't have to be you don't have to have songs you can actually just play you can play your instruments and jam and stuff so yeah um that was very much the the start for me of discovering a world of improvisation mostly oh. through jazz but now it kind of and that's moved on to other things like people improvising with electronics or yeah, that, those are moments when you when you know jamming doesn't isn't really the right term, but you can kind of un, un, imagine what that if you say jamming, you can imagine what that entails. But that moment when you've got a bunch of uh, it doesn't have to be highly skilled, but just a bunch of musicians who kind of all know what they're doing and have that mutual understanding and that connection almost universal connection of right we, we're going in this direction and we all kind of go that way but you know there's kind of no rules around it um I, yeah it's there's this concept of um the muse so you know the greeks had the muses and they believed that the muse kind of was the invisible force in the room that was the one that channeled all the inspiration to the person the recipient and it's almost like you've got yeah four three four how many people in the room herbie and the gang and that muse is just kind of connecting all of them to to produce something like that it's pretty it's magical i'm kind of like you though how did they do it you know how did they know it's it's baffling almost yeah i i'm I, I had I mean it's yeah the the word jam kind of um, can sound a bit belittling like there's like yeah. sometimes when people you think of people having a jam you kind of think that they're just twiddling around navel gazing yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and you know but there's there's no sort of real intent and that's fine you know that's but at the same time it's very different to people coming together and sort of either consciously or unconsciously. Uh, sharing the same kind of motivation to explore something for a period of time mm. um, and that's that's kind of different I think that's when it gets a little bit more exciting um, and yeah like to, 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 to talk about the muse <laughs> I was I once played in a band for a gig with Damo Suzuki as one of his sound carriers right. um, me and uh, this band I were in at, at the time it was, it was it was quite a lot of us. I think there was about six of us in the band. We got invited to do this gig with Dami Suzuki, and um, whilst I'm a little bit critical of him as a vocalist, <laughs> he did kind of strike this force on everyone involved, where we all kind of, because we were with Dami Suzuki, and he was something of a legend, we all wanted to do very well, and um, and so there was you could kind of say that there was almost a muse in the room because afterwards we were all kind of like wow did we really just do that that was like really awesome you know everyone everyone kind of not in a sort of you know self-congratulatory self-congratulatory sort of way more just like we couldn't really believe it <laughs> that there was there was there was a motivation there to 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 provide the right type of background for him to do his thing um and also, I was listening to an interview with Herbie Hancock a couple of days ago, and he told this anecdote about when he was playing with, with Miles Davis. And he was talking about how there was this big silence in the jam, 
and he went to play a chord and he played the absolute most bum chord like ever and he said that he could just feel himself like sinking into the earth because he was so painfully embarrassed that he played this awful chord and um and he said that miles davis kind of looked at him and just started playing the notes in the chord over the top to kind of not to hide the mistake but to kind of say well if that's the direction we're going in then i have to go that way too so and that i i, I thought that that was a pretty pretty inspiring story you know that like sometimes you know sometimes you you can't make mistakes if everyone is in on it <laughs> i don't know if i've explained that very well yeah no it some, sometimes there are no bad notes. Sometimes, yeah, right if, if everyone yeah. if everyone plays the same bad note, then it's the right note. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> amazing, amazing. <laughs> well, talking of kind of free form, the square pusher and the exploding psychology. I mean, that's an artist who it's just about explored. Well, certainly for me, at least, pretty much the entire spectrum of electronic music at some point and sometimes it feels like just in one song you can have just yeah, everything yeah. literally everything bit of a marmite artist as well i know lots of I absolutely artists. absolutely adore him and others can just go i just don't get this so yeah the exploding psychology as well was a pretty pretty crazy song so again why, why did uh, why, why did you choose this one Well, I guess, again, to sort of talk about things that were kind of gateways into other things. When Go Plastic came out, it was quite a, it made quite an impact on me and my friends at the time. You know, we were listening to it all the time. Um, and I was really, um, in sort of 99 and 2000, I was getting, starting to get very excited with jungle which had, which by that point had been around for a while you know yeah. but it it kind of passed me by and so the idea of cutting up drum breaks and resequencing them and turning them into something else was really exciting but on that album he kind of sort of pushes it into the realm of kind of absurd and you don't really know whether he's taking the piss or if it's a, a genuine celebration for that absurdity but at the same time there's all these kinds of things going on that are borrowing from or borrowing or celebrating or whatever from other styles of music that at the time i was also discovering so that i think it's to do with the way that it plays with the sense of space particularly on that track you know one minute you've kind of you feel like the track is in this very very small space and then suddenly it kind of ricochets off into this other space which kind of borrows a lot from dub reggae i think in terms of the the mixing desk being the instrument and choosing what kind of acoustic space or ambience you want to put this track in at that moment and uh at what part of it do you put the whole track in there or just one little bit or whatever so it's um it's kind of like a real sort of kaleidoscope of ambient spaces and but also at the same time it 
kind of led me on to start to discover things like music concrete composers and and electroacoustic composition and that sort of stuff and which has stayed with me i've always been interested in in that stuff um so yeah it was <clears throat> as much as i was really into square pusher at that point some there were some there were some things stylistically on there that led me on to other things which um i've stayed interested with yeah it's uh, quite quite a track and it's interesting yeah, the, the jungle whole side of stuff i mean as you say it's been around for a number of years at that point and clearly it's it i mean for me at least anyway that's like the last big musical scene change if you want to call it certainly in my lifetime it feels to me anyway i mean we've had obviously grime and and, and various offshoots but at the time when that came along to my ears at least it was completely different it was unlike anything i'd ever heard it was super dangerous it sounded super dangerous it mm. looked super dangerous and it it was just an assault on the ears but it was obviously underpinned by again by jazz and by a lot of funk and it just had that uh, groove that you just couldn't resist you kind of listen to it and yet when you got to this with with again with square pusher it kind of it's kind of it's uncomfortable it's even more dangerous than it was when i first sort of heard you know stuff on um on radio one and 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 kiss and all of that so yeah it's just a real assault on the ears yeah that that track as well like some of the um some of the grooves on that track in particular were kind of it's kind of proto dubstep (laughs) yeah in a sense i mean it's borrowing i think it's borrowing a lot from like in a weird way i kind of think that maybe he was channeling destiny's child a little bit because <laughs> there's that sort of like half time that kind of slow fast shuffle thing mm. that's going on with the drum beat um i don't know if that's true but like i, I mean i did read it in an interview once that he's he, he's actually quite a fan of destiny's child which made me laugh but um yeah like the the sound design I mean that album's 20 nearly 20 years old now oh my god mm. but the sound design does not it still sounds so futuristic and i know that, like people say oh my god it still it's 100 years old but it still sounds like the future <laughs> it's like but like it does a bit like i mean there's there are just things going on on that on that record generally that um i've not really heard anyone do since mm. um it's just uh it's 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 just very um progressive and yet it's somehow sort of stuck in this time period <laughs> i mean he did sort of go on and do more stuff like that crazy sound design and mixed in with bombastic rhythms and stuff yeah. but um it doesn't it doesn't sound that dated to me i don't think but yeah. it could be it could be just that i i now have nostalgia for it <laughs> yeah that, that that's an interesting <laughs> concept and something I could probably talk about for another podcast is so uh, maybe it's your festival planning sequencing skills coming to the forefront because the next track Venetian snares epidermis sounds to me at least a pretty natural still crazy but pretty natural progression from from the last track 
but my goodness, this is even for me at least, any even more of an assault on the ears. It's 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 unbelievable. This this particular track. Yeah, again, I get like discovering Venetian snares was was a um, a bit of a another one of those gateways, and um, I'm just, I'm trying not to um, use up uh, my words that I have also had planned for other artists later in the playlist. <laughs> but I mean that there um, there's there's a thing about Venetian snares where there's that you don't really really know what's going on in terms of. You know, is he is he making a joke or does he take this very seriously? Like, the, it, I think it was kind of the first time that I sort of heard music that had a kind of wit about it. Um, you would get these kind of juxtapositions where there would be this like real onslaught of stuff to listen to, and then there'd be like something almost kind of comedic afterwards that kind of led you into something else. And it, it, it as as well as it uh, being a kind of onslaught on the ears. It's also sometimes a bit of an onslaught on your perception <laughs> as well. But I mean, I, I picked that track, that the album that that's from um, is one of my favorites of his because it has, it's so incredibly playful and it has like, it's not com- it's not comedy. It's it's more that the, the choices, there are some choices, decisions made on some of those tracks where you're kind of like, what on earth? Why did you do that? <laughs> So he sampled X-ray specs and put it over the theme tune of Coronation Street, <laughs> and it's like, what? Are you having a laugh? And so that's like th- this, yeah. The idea that you can kind of th- there's a playfulness to it, you know. But that track in particular, even though it's very very aggressive, it's incredibly smooth because some of his stuff up until that point was quite challenging. I mean, I, I mean. Once you get into the thing that it's all in seven, eight, or whatever, <laughs> it becomes a little bit easier to follow. But still, up until that point, it, it was very, very, very cut up, very, very, very like hard to process. But that track in particular, I think, there's a real smoothness to it, and um, yeah, it just has like a really kind of nice sort of drum and bass vibe about it. But um, just some of the the programming on there is just insane. And it, you know, it, it kind of led me on to. I, I was, I was really, really into doing stuff like that myself at the time, like cutting up breaks and sort of just really going like too far with the programming, <laughs> you know. And then, and then I heard his stuff and I was like, oh well, I, well, I don't really need to do this anymore. I'll just listen to him do it instead because <laughs> he's better at it. Um, so, yeah, and I think also the thing with I, I guess people maybe have this a lot more with maybe hip-hop producers that when people sample stuff and you don't know it and then you go and find out what it is that they've sampled and it leads you on to other things I guess that sometimes I have that with him he mm-hmm. picks like um, 
you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, what, what's this what's this thing he sampled? And you go and look it up and you're like, oh, right, okay, that's interesting. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I just... I just think he's um, just a very important artist generally, really. And and, yeah. and even if you find it challenging to listen to, you can't really ignore the craft that's gone into it. You know, it's yeah. it's it, it's 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 real craft. You know, there's um, there's a lot of decisions made. It's it's not like um, compared to maybe a band like Orteca, which which we know are quite open about how they use sort of generative music techniques for composition, which is great. I love that stuff. But, you know, it's not happening, at least to my knowledge, it's not happening when people are making music on a tracker. You know, it's very meticulous. They're making lots of decisions and they slave over milliseconds of sound, <laughs> you know, to get it where where they really want it. And um, that's that's admirable. I don't have time for that personally. So I admire people who do. <laughs> I know what you mean. Then we completely switch gears and we're heading to John Barry and the classic, you know, Thunderball. straight out of left field here but clearly there must be a reason behind this one so see what is it well um again it's to do with being introduced to various types of worlds in mm -hmm. music <laughs> so i grew up in the in the 80s and so film music and television music was everywhere it's less so now um and i, I sometimes wonder if the quality of musicianship will go will dip severely as we lose people like Ennio Morricone I mean I know he's 81 but uh, 91 rather but um you know that I really think that that there's some quality compositions in film and tv music in the in the 20th century that I'm I sometimes wonder if we'll ever see again mm -hmm. because I just think people I don't know why I mean I mean Having said that, um, I did watch the documentary about the Mandalorian, and there was an episode about the guy who did the score for that. And he—he's—he's he's quite a young guy, I think. He must be. I mean, he, he looked about—I don't know, probably about thirty or something. But um, you know, he was doing some real good, um, like real integrity to his approach about how he developed the themes, and you know. And so, yeah, I think for for stuff like John Barry and and other people that I, that I liked at the time um it it was early experiences of of hearing of you know just being kind of um, affected either cerebrally or emotionally or just have just generally having the imagination um stimulated uh that I would get excited about music and 
obviously the fact that it's in a film has something to do with it because you know it's all about extending the 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 mise-en-scene you know <laughs> with music in a way that complements it um but not overriding it and that is a, a, a type of approach to composition that takes a lot of discipline uh-huh. and good communication and collaboration and that's something that i've always respected quite a lot and um it's not it's not really just john barry i, I love like ronnie hazelhurst and um you know obviously like john williams and and stuff like that uh-huh. but um yeah it was it was really the first time i mean my when i was when i was small my my mum was into a lot of bark and a lot of classical music but you know sort of classic fm stuff i guess you could say and uh i had two older sisters and they were very into like duran duran and <laughs> michael jackson and stuff and i and i was just i just remember being excited by music that i was hearing in 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 films and it's and in many ways it it makes or breaks a film you know having a good soundtrack like a good score and um yeah, I think just uh, John Barry was um, was just absolutely brilliant. At, he would kind of like do very, very weird chord progressions. He would kind of, he wouldn't like play in a key. He would find a chord and then move the chord to somewhere else and then try and work out a way to get from that chord to that chord with a melody. <laughs> mm. And it really, it, it's really his flavour, you know. Um, I, I watched the Ipcris file recently and was very pleased to instantly recognize John Barry in the first few seconds because of that <laughs> tonality that he uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's very evocative, I suppose, of the sixties and seventies, but um, he, it, it really um, created a, a, a framework, I suppose, a foundation for me in terms of um, what, what I want to get out of a nicely composed piece of music, you know, mm-hmm. um, that sometimes just bog standard chord progressions or approach to harmony isn't mm-hmm. enough. Um, maybe I'm a bit up my ass and highbrow. I don't know, but that's just my personal taste. And it's, <laughs> and the thing is like these days, you know, you don't really, for me personally, I mean, with the exception of maybe like the theme tune to Westworld, or the theme tune to Game of Thrones, or perhaps the theme tune is Strictly Come Dancing. I don't know. There's not a huge amount of memorable music in mainstream mm-hmm. film and television. You, you know, I don't think so. I mean, I think a lot of it's to do with the fact that producers these days want to maximise the time that they have. So the 30-second the intro theme has been replaced by the three-second ident so that they can maximise the time that they have in there to provide their content, you know. And it's a bit of a shame, I think, because I think there's a lovely, lovely world to explore of uh, of great composition from from that period, particularly mm-hmm. British British composers as well. Mm-hmm. I'm all, I'm still like always on Soulseek, like downloading old TV themes, and I've got I just you know I love it. <laughs> I, th- I I I do I do wonder I do wonder sometimes what's going to happen to the quality of composition. It will probably get even more like divided like it'll it'll probably maybe go back to being incredibly divided in terms of um you'll only really get really high quality composition if you go to an incredibly high school you know 
and whereas like people doing it at home uh might not because they they might not have the means to get that kind of education although actually no because we have the internet i guess it's just more about motivation i keep saying motivation a lot today So look, we talked about them before, and again, I'm going to use the word Marmite art or group again, because they, for me at least, they polarise, certainly almost on an album-to-album basis. There's some I can listen to, and there's some I absolutely adore, and there's others I, I, I'm afraid, bless them to bits, I, I just can't anymore. So we're talking about Ortecra. And, Ortecra, uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> and, of course it is. Who else could it be? And um, the track you particularly chose, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce it. Is it Sipita or... Chipita? I mean, how do you how do you pronounce it? I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> is it the first one off Chiastic Slide? It is, yeah. It's the first yeah, track yeah. off Chiastic Slide. And I, I when I, I wrote this down, I just janky. It's a really janky sounding track, this one. And certainly progression from John Barry is quite an interesting choice. So again, uh, did this come through the square pusher of Venetian Snares kind of link, or was this coming from somewhere else? Um, well, I, it was the first Ortecker album I heard. Okay. And I was very much a sponge for electronic music at the time, particularly stuff on Warp. I guess I'd started with Apex Twin and then that kind of branched into other things. And um, and I heard a lot of my friends who were into that sort of stuff talking about Warteca. So I just went into HMV, picked one up and uh, went home. And um, I was just like, oh. And it it's, they do a really, for me, they do a great job of straddling the line between very alien and very organic. Mm. Um, and also, I think it was because I was just so open at the time to just like I I I just, I just want to consume all electronic music. I don't care what it is. <laughs> that, that there was something satisfying about the kind of the kind of industrial musicality that there is in some of those beats and rhythms. I think there's one track on that album that it sounds like someone just ripping a piece of sellotape, mm. <laughs> and that's kind of the that's kind of the driving rhythm <laughs> but it's so it's just so musical and so I, I guess that what um what excited me about it was that it was it was the uh, an early experience of hearing musicality in things that don't sound inherently musical perhaps in their source you know i don't know what equipment they were using or what 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 ideas they were having i don't I, i'm not a not massively nerdy for all tech. I'm just quite happy to take them at face value, you know. Mm. Um, and so, but also yeah, there's just there's just some like musically there's some nice motifs and refrains on there. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, it, it was one of those gateway things that it, it not only did it kind of open the door for very very abstract electronica, but also in terms of approaches to take for me personally. So they were the they were the first band where 
I learned that they used generative music techniques, and I'm doing that in inverted commas. <laughs> um, that I was like, what? Generative music? What on earth is that? I must find out what that is. And also this idea of designing your own instruments and, mm. and designing your own environments to make your compositions was um, was interesting. And that eventually led me to go and explore similar things. And also different types of synthesis mm-hmm. approaches. You know, they, they definitely have their favorite types of synthesis that I hear a lot. And uh, that's kind of led me to go and explore those things myself and find them equally interesting. Mm. Um, I, I, I get the d- d- division there for people. I've, I, I, I can see that people can find them quite cold. Mm. Um, I, that personally doesn't bother me. Um, they are sometimes very challenging um that doesn't that doesn't bother me at all i kind i would kind of in many ways i would feel uncertain if i didn't feel challenged having listened to orteca Mm. (laughs) do you know what i mean exactly yeah i would kind of i would kind of be maybe prone to criticizing them for for placating me too much (laughs) shall we say yeah i kind of expect i expect that from them and they deliver Uh, like the thing is what you for me what i expect is the unexpected with autech and they always deliver that you know even though that they for, you know i find them quite recognizable i mean there's still so much of their stuff i've still not listened to you know there's so i mean they're releasing 24 hour albums now i don't know if i've got the time but um <laughs> you know like uh, it um yeah it it would be i i hope that they never change <laughs> they, they are they are really spectacular and seminal as well they really are because they they changed the game for warp Warp were already getting a lot of success but obviously with apex um and later with boards but i think Watekra really were the one driving force behind a lot of what that label was doing and what came out of that label and indeed we're going to talk about some of the other artists in a bit for me the the holy trinity is 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 the first three so mm. Incubella, uh, try repeat in '95, but my absolute favourite is Amber. I think that is uh, as good as it gets um, in terms of the electronic sphere. I just I love it to bits that one. Yeah, I'm actually um, I'm a little bit in the dark because I think Amber's maybe one of the ones I've still not listened to, right? <laughs> Which is probably awful with me because I think as a lot of people hold that in quite high regard. I, I um, it's interesting because it's probably the least challenging one, so you might not like it. Because I think there's maybe, maybe, that, there's, yeah. there's maybe two on there that uh, are definitely don't sound like they belong on there. But for me, that the melodies in there are just something else. They just just take you away. But, um, yeah, I think that like if if it wasn't particularly challenging enough to to please me, I would still be open into listening to it in the context of when it came out you know sure, it's sure. Where, where it sits in in their history yeah. um i mean i i personally get more excited by their stuff from the 2000s right. where it, where it really was starting to get like well like kind of um you know trying to find your way through the iron forest you know mm. sort of like i kind of um i i uh i like that i they, they take risks and yeah, I respect they do. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I really think that like the, the kind of 
the sort of 95 to 2005 era generally for electronic music was was just like a real great like renaissance era i think like i think so much of some of the best stuff particularly from like english or european artists is some of the best stuff i think again i don't know if that's if i have nostalgia because that was kind of when i was discovering it so i don't know but um I mean, they do, yeah, as I say, they do still continue to deliver for me personally, Warteca. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I would agree that that period is the is and factually, I would, I would put my hand on my chest and say factually that was the strongest period for uh, I want to say mainstream, but it was pretty much in the mainstream electronic music from the dance music that was all over the charts and had completely flooded in, and the influence it was having there. The parties that were going on, the club scene, the bedroom scene, everything, it was all there at that moment. And then, of course, it, you know, you know, things evolve. But you just look at the albums that released in 95, 96, 97, 98. I've got a poster of, uh, from Dorothy, which they made a big stamp. And on that stamp, it's got these choice albums from the 70s all the way through to sort of 2010 and it is that period from 95 to about 2005 that's got the most pictures of all the little albums from you know even through from Depeche Mode all the way through to obviously Bored Aphex it was just a, a golden era it's not to say there's no nothing good happening now but at that time oh, it's different it's different it's now. different there's... so we're going back in time though the next one and, and i have to say i hadn't listened to this one for a long time and i think my dad had it somewhere in his collection so we're talking about four organs and the oh wow yeah the um steve reich and his bang of can all stars i mean that is kind of thinking back to the herbie hancock at the top kind of one of those real seminal seminal moments when you hear that for the first time remember how i got on to yeah i was at university so i went to i was a little bit older on at university i was about 27 and so i was kind of i was 10 years older than basically everyone there <laughs> and everyone there was like wanted to learn how to be burial and um and i was like uh no i want to read about mid-century minimalist composers please i'm not interested in dance music anymore <laughs> i want to i want to know about the history of electronic music and um and so i think i watched a documentary he did a thing with trains i think he recorded some trains and looped the trains with tape or something anyway i i i, I somehow discovered him in a documentary and was also reading a lot about about him in in books with the parallels between but between um his approach to minimalist composition and how that kind of fed its way into techno. That was, I think that I was reading a piece about that. So mm. I, I started um, getting into it and I heard music for 18 musicians. And I was like, I think it, it, it was, it was the most sober psychedelic experience I ever had <laughs> listening to music for 18 musicians for the first time. And I, and I went to see it live as well some years ago now, quite, right. quite a few years ago. And um, I was blown away by the, 
the the patience and determination of all of those people mm. just like how on a how can you go <laughs> for like 45 minutes and not pass out <laughs> it's like it's just unbelievable but the four organs thing i i, I seem to remember reading that that was a bit of a flop when it was first performed or controversial um but yeah the the conceptually this this idea of sort of slowly revealing a very big chord over the course of 15 minutes mm. <laughs> is like what what on earth and um i i i personally love it i mean i like organs anyway i've got like two old casios and i love the organ sound on them <laughs> and like i i like like big um you know like pipe organ music and stuff um and i think that i think even that was performed on some sort of yamaha organ or something but um i i find it a very stimulating listen <laughs> it's it's a bit i can see it being quite challenging for some people because it's just basically one chord but as it reveals itself it reveals its complexity and its integrity over the course of time yeah. and uh i i i just get very excited when those moments come you know um yeah yeah it's great i mean uh, but again um a choice based around it it was the start of me discovering other types of things so you know i was um uh getting into like philip glass and stockhausen and, and all, all these kind of uh, mid 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 20th century dudes and uh what you know what they were doing and um formed uh contributed a lot to my vocabulary as a as a musician so yeah yeah i, I mean it's it's kind of electronic prog before because yeah. you, you think you think it's 1970 i think it was released so it's right in the middle of or just before you know the big prog rock noodling you know 20 minute massive gatefold albums you know all the all the you know bells and whistles mm. um so it's kind of it's kind of around that time and i was so glad you mentioned philip glass because i mean you just listen to it and it's pretty much philip glass kind of built his whole career around that kind of just looping and and playing and and as you say revealing something that's pretty simple but has somehow made it kind of rhythmical and hypnotic so yeah it's interesting mm, yeah there's some really interesting I mean, he loves his arpeggios, Philip Glass. Yeah. But um, th the things that I hear sometimes with some of his sort of arpeggio stuff is that um, he'll change the emphasis. He'll change the accent in the arpeggio th over time, you know, and mm. will push, will push like certain notes over the course of the piece. And I think that's that ties in nicely with Steve Reich's um, kind of uh, tape loop stuff where mm -hmm. the, the phasing where it's like uh is it semantic aciation where you you start ascribing meanings to things different from previously right you know like if you if you keep saying a word over and over and over it starts to sound ridiculous you know yes. and it, it's like with the phasing thing it it's about over the course of this of the thing going out of sync with itself it starts to form these new patterns mm -hmm. and your ears latch onto 
them differently than you than you were maybe 30 seconds ago yeah and it's a very disorientating listen <laughs> yeah but that's part of that that's part of the idea you know that it's yeah. to perception i suppose yeah, it's part of the fun With rhythmics and, and chords, we go to, I kind of understand, I suppose, man, we've been talking why you chose Jimi Hendrix and certainly from, you know, your guitar playing and that kind of experience perhaps. But yeah, for someone who just used rhythm in a way with his instrument to create something, I mean, totally and pretty much unheard of back at the time when you know the, the, these things have been played i mean i must imagine listening to these live must have been an out-of-body experience oh even yeah if you, even if you even if you parked the you know copious amounts of drugs that are going around at the time that you've chosen tracks from woodstock the star spangled banner how did jimmy come into your life was probably the first time that I remember getting excited about music but in a kind of physical way rather than a kind of cerebral way um, that's probably got to do that's probably got a lot to do with Wayne's World I'll be honest I think okay. it's a, I think that scene in Wayne's World was the first time I heard Hendrix I was probably about 12 years old right um, so that's probably it's probably Wayne's World's fault um, but <laughs> I I um, I, when I was learning, when I was learning the guitar, um, Hendrix was kind of the only sort of person from the, well, I guess the 60s. But I always think of him more as a sort of 70s guitarist, even though that he died in yeah. 1970. <laughs> um, like, uh, so I'll say a historic. Uh, learning guitar in the 90s, he was kind of the, the only sort of historic guitarist that kind of didn't make me cringe. Really, I, I, I've never been a huge zeppelin person or um a huge uh the who or whatever or sabbath or i mean i like sabbath but like i just uh, as a guitarist learning to play the guitar and sort of looking back at what had ha what had been there and trying to find something to get excited about i didn't really get that excited i was more excited by like 80s guitarists <laughs> um probably because of all the crazy technical you know whammy bars <laughs> um and tapping but um i mean hendrix was um is just so sort of far out you know and, and he's also probably the only one that's really stayed with me um 
and I think that's probably to do with yeah just the the risks embracing like the avant-garde I sometimes feel this way a little bit about Eddie Van Halen as well I, I can take or leave Van Halen the band but him as a guitarist I think he he actually kind of gets overlooked as an avant-garde performer when he's just doing things when he's just making a complete racket with a guitar and just trying to find every single possible sound that he get out of it. it's not music it's about the the instrument just the instrument mm-hmm. and Hendrix for me has um yeah, he he's uh, so learning guitar. He was a real kind of motivation for for me to really learn the guitar because I was just like, wow, the guitar's so cool. You can make all these crazy sounds, and like he's so like for 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 a very shy, timid person, he's so like wild and physical with it. You know, he's like playing it with his elbows, and <laughs> you know, and um, I still get excited watching him. So over the course of time more and more stuff gets put on the internet and you can find old gigs or whatever and i still get very excited watching him the thing with the star spangled banner is i I don't really know what the intention was behind that i personally think it's quite subversive it was like an act of subversion i think because of the climate at the time Mm -hmm. but i seem to remember him saying in an interview that maybe it wasn't I, I, I find it quite subvert, sub, subversive and that like the idea of, of um, like just completely ripping apart pa- patriotism, pa- yeah. patriotism with a load of fucking feedback and Marshall stacks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. very amusing to me. All I do is play it. I'm American, so I played it. I used to sing it in school. They made me sing it in school, so it's a flashback. You know, I don't know about it. This man was in the 101st Airborne, so when you write your nasty letters in... Nasty letters? Well, you When you mention the national anthem and uh, talk about playing it in any unorthodox way, you immediately get a guaranteed percentage of hate mail from people who say, how dare... That's not unorthodox. That's not unorthodox. It isn't unorthodox? No, no. I thought it was beautiful. You've got so many machines, Richard. You've got so many machines, Richard. Yeah, so now we're heading back to Warp, and we've already mentioned his name a few times, Aphex Twin. So a huge catalogue to choose from, from, you know, so many years. It's so hard to, to pick, but you chose Come to Daddy and the uh, the Mummy mix of Come to Daddy. So again, we talked to Gateways and things like that. Was this another Gateway, or was, did it link from somewhere else? What's the story on this? Yeah, I mean, it was... It... I mean, I, Come to Daddy was the first album I heard of Aphex Twin, and I kind of rem- I, I do remember it, guys. I was um, I had a friend who well, I'd sort of dropped out of this jazz college, and I'd come home, and I was a little bit like, 
oh, I don't really know what to do with myself. Maybe I'll start doing music on computers. That looks fun. And I had a friend who uh, um, showed me a lot of software and uh, kind of set me off. And I was also like, yeah, I'm really into this kind of like, you know, like the drum and bass thing. And he played me, he played me that. <laughs> it wasn't what I was expecting, but I was like, whoa. And I think the, the come, come, come to Danny's a good starting point for Apex Twin because there are, the, um, it really kind of encapsulates all the different kind of elements of his style, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it was kind of, it were again, kind of on a, I think, in terms of getting excited on a physical, visceral level and on a cerebral level, it does the perfect job with the first two tracks. So you've got Come To Daddy, which is very aggressive, really, really, really aggressive. And then you've got Flim, which is incredibly gentle and beautifully put together. And the way that they sit next to each other, I think, makes both of them better. I think hearing them separately, you actually lose something. You need to hear one after the other, I think. But the the, the remix, there's a it's so chilling you know there's something going on with the uh with the textures there um that feels very claustrophobic and quite frightening and i and I, as much as i you know i was talking about finishing snares earlier in terms of like having a sense of wit i think there are certainly elements of wit and irony in a lot of apex twins stuff but it was also kind of the first time i seem to remember being quite afraid of electronic music (laughs) (laughs) like a bit terrified and in a very satisfying way you know and i would kind of look forward to that i've been to like i've been to a lot of his you know they're not live sets i suppose they're dj sets but um the around about that time i went to go and see him in london um probably the only time i've been clubbing in london (laughs) and uh, it was at the end in Soho and I think it was maybe a reflex night because I think Avuka was playing that night too but uh, we were all going to to go and see Apex Twin and uh, I think a lot of people were there too expecting to hear Window Looker and it was not it was not at all it was like 240 BPM Gabba for like three hours (laughs) and and it was and everyone and people were like really like there were people sitting on the floor with their head in their hands because they just (laughs) taken they'd taken like their pills and were like well up for a rape and I was just, I was, oh. la- I was just laughing. I, I, I just remember laughing, thinking, "This is hilarious." In, in retrospect, I think, I kind of think that's quite mean, actually. <laughs> mm. Like he's a real, he's a real troll for the dark. He really trolls he the dance floor. But at the same he time, is. not at all. Like I've been to some, I've been to some of his DJ sets, and he really knows how to do a mm. really nicely crafted progressive DJ set that starts yeah. you from nothing. You're sitting down, and then I remember uh, I went to go watch Square Pusher. And he was the warm-up DJ. And he started with this incredibly slow tempo, sort of old acid, acid house, and everyone was sat down. And over the course of the hour and a half, by the end of it, everyone was standing up, sweating with their hands in the air. And then Square Pusher comes on. It was just the perfect warm-up DJ I've, uh, like I've ever watched. You know, yeah. very professionally done. <laughs>
And so we've come to the last last track again. Seminal band can track. Oh yeah. So yeah, what, it's a good good track to to wrap up. It's been a, a great conversation. So again, was this one of the kind of those opening moments for you? I guess. Yeah, I mean, sort of discovering that thing that that uh, era of sort of German stuff that was way 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 in the past. Well, when, when the first time I heard it. It seemed very, 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 very far in the past, and it was it was very refreshing because uh, it it was coming from from an era that I thought I'd explored and made up my mind that I had no interest in, but it turns out that there was a lot of great stuff going on. It was just in another country, and um, but I think that like um, I mean that Holger I n- I don't know how to pronounce his last name, so I'm going to say Suke uh, was a, someone who I later went on to read a lot about at university and his thing was that they would record big long jams and then he would cut them down and pick out the good bits and paste them together to make whatever it was that they were going to release and um, that's absolutely something that I do all the time and I you know I I love the idea of like farming for for good bits in long extended jams (laughs) and um, but also there is there's just something going on with the keyboard in in the background of that track that's very very exciting you know it's straddling the lines but obviously you have that kind of motoric thing on the drums and the bass but there's something going on with the texture that's really straddling the line between utopia and dystopia you know which i which i enjoy very very much and i think is quite very germanic I don't know if I'm over romanticizing it, but um, it, it it kind of uh, it resonates with me. <laughs> I know what you mean. It sounds German somehow. Yes. It, it, you associate it. It sounds German. Yeah. Yes. So so did you? Was this one of the artists that you found when you were kind of studying back at university in later years, or did you introduce? Were you introduced to it kind of in your teens? Where, where did it come from? No, I was introduced to it by a friend of mine. And we actually do a podcast together. I'll send you a link. He, he mostly picks the music. Yeah, I mean, he. I think he came about discovering it because of that book that Julian Cope wrote about Krautrock. Oh, yeah. And, yes. um, and so he, he was starting to explore all of that and um, was kind of like telling me about it. And I think it was maybe kind of trendy at the time. I, it, I think like, I think maybe Sonic Youth were quite outspoken about their interest in that type of stuff. Um, so yeah, I heard Noi and I was really, I was really like, oh my God, I can't believe that someone was making this 30 years ago. This is amazing. So sparse and, um, so, so gentle. And then like hearing Can, which was much more funky and, you know, um, it was just a, it was just a, an exciting discovery, you know, this idea that like all this music exists, I think is a, is a, maybe as a British person, this idea that all this exciting music was kind of existing a couple of doors down in another country, but you didn't know about it was an exciting thing, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of can stuff I can kind of take or leave. I actually kind of find it all quite samey, but good samey. Like it's, I'm happy to listen to it, but I, you know, that I don't really consider them to be, to have been particularly diverse with their own work, um, but that's okay. But they're, they're, 
the um i forget what the album's called now it's tego mago isn't it there's it there's is. a there's a lot of textures on that album that are just very exciting from a kind of ambient music perspective the the the, the kind of um the ambience those these ambient textures being driven by the by the motoric drums is uh, is really nice yeah good stuff <laughs> well Ned, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on time you. lock we've covered an awful lot of ground i really hope for you listening in I've enjoyed as much as I have listening to, to Ned talk about this. Before we wrap up, we should probably just uh, cover a few things you're up to. So your festival, More Kicks Than Friends. Obviously, uh, do you have a date for the next one or kind of how regularly are you doing those? Well, um, the next one is this Saturday, which is the 11th. But yeah. if you're listening to this in the future, then that's maybe gone, been and gone. <laughs> <laughs> so I, my plan is to try and keep doing them every Saturday. I don't know how long that will be because I it's it's sometimes quite difficult to find acts. However, I somehow keep managing to pull it off. I don't know how, but it's it's still going. So I'm doing the 14th show this weekend. And yeah, I'll just keep doing them every Saturday, 8 p.m. UK time on my YouTube channel. Yeah, and then with that, I, 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 I just generally keep chucking out the odd YouTube video now and again. And um, I just keep trying to make music i kind of want to get an album out soon because it's been a while since i put one out and i kind of want to remind people that you know i actually make music (laughs) (laughs) and i I don't just talk about it (laughs) or show show other people how to make it you know so um but uh, yeah it's uh it's always a slow process when when you when you when you work on your own and, and you've no deadlines it's always a slow process getting albums out but um yeah and you mentioned a podcast as well. Do you want to plug that one? Yes. So I uh, we've not done one for a while, but we 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 there are lots of shows. I think there must be about a hundred shows. It's called Winky and the Stain. It's me talking much like I'm talking now, <laughs> with my friend, and he does some talking. And we generally have a few beers, and it's very irreverent and sometimes a little bit childish. But the uh, the quality of music is very high. You, you, I, if you're a music fan, um, I, I'd, I'd be bold enough to make the assumption that you'd enjoy it a lot because it's very, very diverse. <laughs> Superb. Eclectic. Right, well, I've added that to my list of things to listen to and I hope at home or wherever you're listening to this, you're doing the same too. Ned, it's been a pleasure and uh, good you. luck with the, with the festivals and we'll wrap up. Thank you. Cheers. Huge thanks again to Ned for a wonderful and insightful conversation. Don't forget to subscribe to his YouTube channel or find him on all the usual social media platforms. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Time Lock. If you did, please leave a comment, like or share. Watch out for the monthly gated podcast presented by Node and check out past episodes of Time Lock on SoundCloud. So until next time...